Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month we look at one play, over 30 minutes, with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon. I'm Erin Dewar, and we are not in print. After working as a solicitor, John Misto changed direction. He decided to become a writer. That career change eventually led to the Shuhorn Sonata. It is dense, shocking and poignant, a piece of narrative non-fiction that depicts real-life events with a solicitor's attention to factual detail and a storyteller's understanding of how emotional truths must be drawn out through narrative construction. The play won the 1995 New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, but John was perhaps more satisfied that it rang true for the World War II nurses whose story he was sharing with the world. In 1945, Sheila and Bridie were freed from a Japanese POW camp deep in the jungles of Sumatra, where thousands of women and children had lived and died virtually forgotten by their own governments. Now, after being separated for half a century, the filming of a television documentary forces them to relive the past, contact the present and question the future. Woven into their 50 years of separation are a shoehorn and the threads of loyalty and love which form their uncommon bond. John, thank you for joining us to talk about your play, The Shoehorn Sonata. You were inspired to write this piece of narrative non-fiction after reading Betty Jeffrey's book, White Coolies. In that book, she tells the story of her time as a nurse in Malaya and Singapore during World War II and how a terrible series of events led her to being taken captive by the Japanese and imprisoned for years in prisoner of war camps. After reading the book, you became obsessed with the story. When you met some of the women that she was in prison with, few of whom survived, you knew that this was a story that needed to be told, or retold, actually. What did you hope to achieve when writing the Shuhorn Sonata? I wanted to update White Cooley's The Betty Jeffrey Story. It ended when she returned to Melbourne in 1945, and I discovered in my research, that many, many things had happened to these women when they came home. And the things that had happened to the nurses and the civilian survivors were as significant as anything that happened to them during their imprisonment. Can you tell us a little bit about Betty's story? Well, Betty Jeffrey wrote her story and published it, I think, in about 1952. She was an army nurse who had been imprisoned by the Japanese. She had served in Malaya and they were sent there at a time when no one thought the Japanese would invade. The British in Singapore had been ordered to evacuate all the women and children in Malaya and Singapore two years earlier. And they refused, didn't they? They refused. They said it would be bad for morale. And so the Japanese pilots could not believe the stupidity of the British. It's astounding. They they bombed and bombed and bombed and slaughtered thousands. And And amidst all that, when the British finally did evacuate in a frenzy themselves because they literally had to throw people onto boats, practically, the nurses didn't want to leave. That's right. They were ordered to leave their patients. Now, as I said in the play, they put approximately 13,000 women and children onto these 300 ships and sailed them off. And it was just a series of calamitous events, one after the other, so badly managed. Even the life jackets were killing people as yes. they were jumping off the boats. Yes. It just seemed like it was doomed, absolutely it, doomed. It was doomed. And again, Betty Jeffrey was very polite and quite restrained 
in her memoirs because it wasn't regarded as seemly for a person in the army to complain about the hierarchy. You've kind of taken charge of telling their story in a way that perhaps they might not have felt they could. You were just saying that Betty Jeffries was quite polite. Yes. And I just wanted to ask you about the nurse's story because it does illustrate the strength and endurance of the female spirit. And I wanted to ask whether or not this was a significant aspect of the story for you and how it affected your approach in the telling of it. It was hugely significant. Mateship is regarded as a male domain, but from what I was seeing, women are capable of, of much stronger mateship than men and, and mateship that lasts. And I was just looking at the friendships of some women I know and how intense those friendships were and how much they depended on each other and how much more they really confided and supported each other. And it was that mateship that made me decide this is going to be a two-hander. I'm just going to focus on the mateship between Bridie and Sheila. And I based it on real events. I interviewed the women survivors of Japanese captivity and one of them actually had a shoehorn. And so I thought it wasn't just a metaphor for the friendship. It actually existed and was an implement that this woman used for survival. It does represent some amazing things in the play as well. But I'd like to go back first to talk about life in the camps. Certainly. Look, the biggest aspect of life in the camps that, that all the women told me was the terrible boredom because they had nothing to do. Or day and night, they had nothing to do. They starved and they were constantly aware of their starvation. And starvation is extremely painful. It was something I hadn't realised because as your organs shut down, they contract. And and this brings on really agonising cramps. And so they would do things like press pillows against their stomachs to, to stop the cramps and to stop the pain. And that seemingly endless imprisonment started to actually affect them emotionally, obviously. Yes. And they lost touch with themselves. It almost stripped them of their identities. Yes. And I think that was one of the aims of, of the Japanese, uh, was to strip them of their identities and to debase and humiliate them, uh, not allowing them privacy, making them go to the toilet in public, making them bow and starving them when food was placed where they could see it. And medicines were placed where they could see them. That was a form of, of, of breaking their spirit. One thing I must say, which also fascinated me, was that all the prisoners in the Japanese prison camps seemed to break up into couples. And this was because survival was so hard and cooking food and everything was so hard they couldn't function as groups. Mm. And so it was quite normal for each person to have one other person they depended upon. And they kept each other alive, and that was their pledge. We will keep each other alive. When one died, the other died. It was fairly normal for Bridie and Sheila to have formed this friendship as a matter of survival. There's forms of heroism in the play. They're not akin to comic book superheroes or anything like that, obviously. They're seemingly small gestures, very intimate. But considering the life and death circumstances in which they play out, they hold a great amount of power. Oh, yes. Well, first of all, the small gestures like um, Sheila giving her rice to Bridie on Bridie's birthday. Mm, when she has dengue fever. So this, this little bit of food is, is a huge, huge sacrifice. Uh, again, the caramel, sharing the caramel mm. for 30 seconds. And then the acts of mateship, which like Mavis Hannah hanging over the side of, of the boat, rinsing out the bedpans mm. at risk to her life because she's determined that they will maintain their dignity. They, they won't sit in that hold covered in 
in excrement. They will wash themselves and wash the pans and they will have dignity. They sound minor to us, but they were the difference between life and death to those women. Actually, they don't sound minor at all. And one that really struck me was the male prisoners risking their lives to visit the female prisoners to sing them Christmas carols. Yes, and that happened. That really happened. And that is a demonstration, again, of the healing power of music. What is it about the music that speaks to these women and what does it do for them at that time? People in prison only had two weapons, music and humour. And the music reminded them of home. Mm. It took them back to shared experiences of home and it also allowed them to have shared experiences with each other. And that's why the camp choir became a way of uniting and raising the spirits of the women. And also sometimes it became an act of defiance. Humour was defiance, music was defiance, a a form that united them and showed they were not broken. Mm. The music in the play on the soundtrack is to to make you aware of the period, to evoke a sense of nostalgia and also sometimes it it comments ironically Mm. uh, on the action. For example, when Prime Minister John Curtin, which he did, tells them to keep smiling, you then hear Judy Garland singing when you're smiling. Mm. And again, I mean, the, the response of the women to that, they just laughed and laughed and laughed. Yeah. They were skinny and starving and being beaten up. And the only message they'd had from the government that didn't evacuate them was to keep smiling. They had a very macabre sense of humour. Well, let's talk about mm. the shoehorn because obviously it's used in the choir that's formed within the camp. And mm. it doesn't just symbolise the rhythm of music itself. Can I talk Please about do. the life cycle of the, of the shoehorn? Yeah. It begins life as the real shoehorn did as a gift from Bridie's father who'd been in the war to her to say, you know, don't stretch your boots when you use the shoehorn. Then when the ships are sunk at sea and Bridie and Sheila meet in the water after their ships have been sunk. Bridie hits Sheila on the nose with it. She says she taps her. Taps her gently. <laughs> so she, but it saves Sheila's life. It yeah. means Sheila is kept conscious and, and doesn't drown. Later on in the camp when they form the choir, Bridie uses the shoehorn as a metronome. And, and so it, it, Bridie, who can't sing, becomes a part of the choir. Uh, they then use it as a digging tool to dig graves mm. and earn some money so that that they can survive and also bury their friends decently. Then it becomes a a bribe when Sheila uses the shoehorn to try and bribe Lipstick Larry for quinine. Uh, But the bribe fails and and Sheila is raped and then the shoehorn becomes a symbol of her shame and degradation and she hides it for, for 50 years. And if you look in the play, you will find how other implements, minor trivial things become major things for these women. For example, the spotted rag that saved their lives when they were, they were taken to the brothel. And an incredible power play as well, yes. pretending that they have tuberculosis exactly. so that they can yes. avoid being sexually abused by the people yes. that held them captive for so long. Amazing cleverness, shrewd, this survival instinct when it kicks in is phenomenal. Getting back to the shoehorn, the shoehorn at the end, Sheila returns it to Bridie, it becomes a symbol of their reconciliation. And then right at the end, it's just a shoehorn again. It's lost its power to threaten Sheila. It's, it's lost its demonic past, and now it's just a shoehorn. The other thing, one of the directors of this play, and I'd really like to say this, said to me, the shoehorn is the fourth character in this play. And I thought that was a really excellent 
concept. I wish I'd thought of it. And <laughs> it evolves thing. like a character. Mm. It develops like a character. Then it takes them along with it. I'd like to discuss how you use the private and the public sphere as a means of presenting versions of the same story. Tell us what you wanted to achieve by separating Bridie and Sheila's story between the privacy of a hotel room and a TV studio where their story will be crafted for the public and then beamed out across the country. Well, that's exactly it. The TV studio is acceptable history and the motel room is real history. Now, Doris Lessing said that history is what we get when it's been cleaned up by governments. And <laughs> we're seeing the sanitised version in the television studio. And then when Bridie and Sheila are together, they tell the stories that no one wants to hear. And they kind of know by now no one wants to hear. We've spoken about the perceived history as it's presented by the media. Yes. Or yes. by history, please note yes. inverted commas. And then the true history, the real history that happens in the hotel room between these two women. That's right. And I'm just interested to know whether or not you had an idea of Rick as a real man in the world because he doesn't actually appear on stage. He's not present. You just hear his voice. Did you have a, an idea of who he was? All their lives, these women have been manipulated by men they didn't see. They were, were sent off to war by Australian generals. They weren't evacuated by Australian military. Their lives were decided by Japanese generals they never saw. They were locked out of history. Their diaries were burnt by Australian government officials. So Rick continues this tradition. To me, Rick is the voice of fate. Fate doesn't have your interests at heart. Fate is quite uncaring. Rick is exploiting them. He has brought them there. He suspects something has gone on in that camp. He doesn't care what happens to these women as long as he gets his story. Now, it's to their credit that the women survive, but they are once again the tools of fate and the tools of, of men they don't see. Tricky ethical question here. Yes. Can we say that it's still a good thing that their story gets out there considering the fact they actually take control of it at the end of it and don't allow him to implant his own story on top of theirs? They actually tell the truth. Yes, but that's an accident of fate again, isn't it? I mean, they could have, Sheila could have gone off and killed herself. Rick wouldn't have cared. It's because they're used to surviving with each other when under an external threat that they rally to each other. And I suppose they're also used to not actually having their story out there. So yes. perhaps they see this as their only opportunity. Their only opportunity to get the word out and to have their experiences recognised. Mm. And even amongst themselves, there are stories they won't discuss. There's a line in the play where they mention the little boy who asked for an egg and died before he could get one. And Bridie says, I won't discuss that. And even now, that's too raw. And the motel room, they start to be broken down. They're reminiscing in the studio. It's bringing their trauma to the surface. And they take that trauma back with them to the motel room. And the wounds which have been opened begin to bleed. How do they face the past, the present, and in fact each other after all this time? Bridie is astounded Sheila hasn't married. Because Sheila was young, attractive, and a flighty teenager who liked, I think, Bing Crosby. And I think in her mind, Bridie would have imagined Sheila with children and, mm. th and substitute grandchildren for Bridie. And, and almost as a reflection of things that she wanted for herself, exactly. perhaps. Exactly. And yeah. things you would want for your daughter. Yeah. Bridie is a very open person and comes 
with a full heart. Mm. The other thing I must say again is that there were only two careers open to women before the Second World War, and, and those careers were nursing or teaching. Yep. The places in nursing were hugely competitive, and to be an army nurse, you had to be the brightest of the nurses. And Bridie is a very intelligent woman. She's down to earth and a larrikin, but she's got a brain, a very powerful brain. Do you think there's any evidence that Sheila can't let go of what happened to them? The fact that she never married, the fact that she told no one of her experiences, the fact that she never contacted Bridie for 50 years is the real indication that she can't let go of what happened to them. Yeah. And we tend to forget this now, but in the war years, the women were blamed for the rape. Mm. You see, once you were raped, you were ruined. No decent man would want you. That was the attitude. And so this is a a kind of cloud of shame that hovers over Sheila. Mm. And again, she would not get any sympathy if she told people what she had endured. No. Women were double victims in that sense. Mm. We're much more compassionate now, but not for Sheila, not back then. And even Bridie says to her, if you tell the truth, I'll call you a whore, which really hurts Sheila. And like all the nurses, really, they haven't spoken to anyone about their experiences. They are both suffering what I would call post-traumatic stress disorder and especially Sheila. This was extremely common among the survivors, spectacularly common. One of the nurses I interviewed had changed her name after the war and changed her identity and told everyone, even her closest friends, that she had spent the war in Grafton. She had completely reinvented herself because she couldn't face up to the horrors of what she had been through. And I think this would probably have been Sheila. I I think Sheila would have been very traumatised. And Bridie, of course, is very angry that not knowing what Sheila has done for her, Bridie is very angry that Sheila, whom she regarded as her daughter, has not corresponded with her for 50 years, has just walked out on her. One thing I did in the play, I talk very little about their private lives since the war. I wanted them to come to this play, to this story, not defined by men. I wanted them to really be fresh out of that camp emotionally. Hmm. Because, again, a lot of the survivors that I spoke to, that war was yesterday as far as they're concerned. The wounds are very raw. And so they're not really in a condition to face the past and it looms in the end of the second scene they're lifting a suitcase which turns into a coffin instantly transported exactly so that for them the past is the present and it's only at the end of the play really when then they've exorcised their demons that they have a future you've said that you didn't want to include too much about their private lives after the war but can you tell us more about who these women are now and kind of how that post-traumatic stress has manifested in different ways for them? Sure. And again, I I kind of based this on the women I saw. I imagine, I'm certain that if Sheila never married and Mm. Sheila is quite uptight and Sheila would drink, but Sheila's house would be spectacularly clean. I've interviewed many post-traumatic stress survivors and the cleaner the house the more devastated they are internally. And it's a real warning signal to me when I go in because if the house is absolutely surgically spotless, they're trying to control their environment because they can't control their inner 
yes. emotions. Obsessive compulsive kind yes, of. Yes, obsessive yeah. compulsive. And it really is a telltale sign. I'm not talking mm. clean. I'm talking yeah. surgically clean. Mm. And I think Sheila's house would be just spotless. You could do a heart transplant on her bathroom floor. You know, it, would be, <laughs> it would be so clean. Yeah. And I think she wouldn't give away a lot about her life. and She simply would not acknowledge what she had been through. Right. And the interesting thing is Sheila brings that shoehorn to the reunion. She, I think, comes there wanting revenge on Bridie. I get that sense. Yeah. Too. And, you know, mothers and daughters, you know, it's kind of uh, the daughter blaming the mother. The power play between them is so interesting. It is because Bridie assumes the role of the substitute mother. She's saying to Sheila, have you drunk your charcoal water or the nits in your hair? Let me have a look. She's pushing Sheila around. But Sheila won't be the submissive little girl for long. And then, of course, the power balance changes when Sheila reveals what she has done. And suddenly Bridie is at her mercy. Mm. And Sheila has, has, it's not a trump card. It's a sacrifice. And the roles are completely reversed. And what about their relationship with men? Bridie has married yeah. an ex-POW who understands what she went through. Quite a romantic of, story, actually. Yeah, but it's true, one. isn't yeah. it? It's, it's a lovely story, but they, they understood each other and so understood the trauma, the deprivation. Mm. I think for a lot of the women it was they found it very, very hard to convey to other people what they had gone through and they were asked questions like, how did you wash your sheets in captivity? And they couldn't say, we didn't have sheets, we didn't have water, we had nothing. They just couldn't bridge that gap. And I think that happened with men who weren't familiar with what they'd been through. And again, you have to remember that their women were locked out of history so that no one knew about their war experiences. Still today, no one really knows. And so they didn't have society on their side. The men would have Anzac Day and these horrible images of Changi and sympathy. Mm. And people trying and and seeing what they went through, whereas the women had none of this. They had disbelief. So their lives with their partners would have been quite difficult. In scene 13, when Bridie reveals the truth of Sheila's heroism and the self-sacrifice of saving her life, Bridie then allows Sheila to tell the truth about her shoplifting arrest. And until this point, she's been extremely closed-lipped about these events. But what's changed for Bridie so that she can finally allow Sheila to to tell the truth at this point. Confronting the past has taken Bridie back to the past Mm. and it's reawakened all the emotions that she felt then. I think the most important words in in this play are Bridie's description of herself and Sheila being released from the camp and, and going down to the village where she says, on four wobbly legs, we went down to the village. She doesn't say the two of us. They see each other now once again as one entity. Yeah, well, there's this beautiful moment when we hear about how the Japanese played the Blue Danube for the prisoners and the stage directions state that this moment is joyous, it's triumphant, the music is life. And as it fades, Bridie exclaims, we're going to survive this war and when it's over, you and I will go dancing. And they just do so much for each other, these women. There's so much hope that they give in order to survive and get through. Oh, yes. Now, if you look, first of all, that that really did happen. That scene where the women, I've had this confirmed by the survivors, they really were forced to go up that hill and they they Mm. thought they'd be shot. And if you look at that scene, Bridie's first thought is, I want some grass where Sheila and I can lie down and die together. Even facing death, she wants to make it as easy as possible for Sheila. And this, again, is the moment when the power shifts from the Japanese to the women, when... 
Captain Seeky stands on the box and says, the Geneva Convention says you must have culture, you've just had yours. But the music there becomes a symbol of them triumphing. John, I'd really like to talk to you about the idea of truth because it's the thematic fulcrum of the piece. We have Bridie and Sheila's personal truth and the truth written in history books. Then there are opinions and beliefs that are not, in fact, true at all. And importantly for this story, we witness the uncovering of buried truths. Clearly, there was a lot of different versions of the truth that you had to manage when you were writing the piece. I'd like to know how you managed to do that whilst maintaining emotional sensitivity and honesty and and a groundedness as well. I pulled back on a lot of things. I didn't tell the the whole and complete truth here because I thought audiences couldn't handle it. I just thought, what can they cope with? And so I'll just, I'll give them small doses of what they can cope with. Is that why you included photos in the piece? You have many projected on the stage throughout and they serve to illustrate the facts and remind the audience and readers that these are real events. Oh, yes, and to shock the audience. I also wanted to put to you perhaps the images assist the truth of the narrative by, well, together with the strong spotlights and the pools of darkness that you've written into your stage directions, they create the television studio. They also give, again, authenticity to that documentary style of production that you've set up as a mechanism of telling this story. Look, several things. Images are hugely important because... Once you see, I'm not making this up, once yeah. you, you see photos of the women and children on the boats, you see actual photos of mm. the, the British ladies in their hats with their gloves and their floral skirts waving goodbye and you know that two hours later they're all going to be dead. It says to the audience this is true. So the images, they advance the story, they tell you the story is true and most importantly they make you care about the characters. Yeah. It's not Brechtian. You know, Brecht says you should educate your audience without involving them emotionally. But I really had to make my audience care about Bridie and Sheila. If you don't care about Bridie and Sheila, the, the play has failed. This play, as you've been saying so beautifully, this is your monument to the Australian army nurses and to all those women and children who were civilian prisoners of war at the hands of the Japanese. As Vera Harm says in her forward Scores to be Settled, well-known are the tales of the Burma Railroad, the POWs of Changi, Sandakan and other places. But who has ever heard of Mantok, Belalau, Sidang, Adek or Tangerang? Even the Prime Minister of Australia at the time, John Curtin, seemed to lack understanding in his treatment of the women. Bridie remarks that the government told us we were on our own, just as they told us to keep smiling. Why do you think their story has been forgotten over such a long period of time? Firstly, the women saw... Two empires at their worst. The nurses witnessed the spectacular incompetence of the British Empire. They witnessed the callousness of their own army with the officers who had abandoned wounded soldiers and unarmed nurses. Now, no one wanted that ever coming out. There was never an inquiry into that. When you read the war history of that encounter, it's completely different to the account we had from the survivors. So when the nurses got home, no one wanted them. They were a, the civilians wanted them. They were a reproach to the government for its incompetence. They were a reproach to the British. They then weren't publicising themselves. They didn't have the RSL behind them. Mm-hmm. They were traumatised, so they retreated into themselves. In 1994, 
they realized that they were starting to die out. And they, they realized as well they were going to be forgotten by history. And they approached the Australian government for a memorial in Canberra. They wanted a government-funded memorial to acknowledge them, and they were refused. Um, this was by a government that had an office for the status of women. And then they asked for a postage stamp, and they were refused. And so the, the hostility went on. They, it wasn't that they were being forgotten. They were being written out of history. They had seen too much. Right. And the interesting thing is theatre companies that were doing plays about nudity and drug-taking and bestiality would not stage a play about two old ladies in a motel room remembering the war. And that thrilled me, actually, because <laughs> it angered me, but it thrilled me because I thought it's, this is a dangerous story. I love the fact that little old ladies can be dangerous, that 50, 60, 70 years after these events, they're still dangerous, but terrible for them. They died knowing that the country they had served did not want them, did not value them, and that it had all been forgotten. Well, you've been quoted as saying that you don't have the power to build a memorial for them, so you wrote a play instead, and in some way kind of bucked a trend, perhaps, in some way you got something in there. Thanks to the ensemble, and really thanks to the teachers. I mean, it, it was the teachers who put this play on the syllabus who realised it was an important part of Australian history and who realised it, it wasn't racist, that, that the Allies had inflicted as many horrors on these women as the Japanese had, mm. and that in fairness, the story had to be told. John, thanks so much. What an eye-opener this play is and what an eye-opener you've brought to the table today. It's been wonderful to speak to you about this play. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Our pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter. This episode was recorded in Sydney. It was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of Rachel Corbett.